We are at Revelation chapter 12. And today this, our, our section is Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. We'll begin reading from Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant with she was pregnant and was crying out in in birth, birth pains and the agony <clears throat> of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads uh, seven diadems. His tail, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. <clears throat> but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our, brethren, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you are good, that you are worthy of our praise. Father, we pray that we might delight in you and that we might trust in you. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the one who has defeated Satan. That by his death and his resurrection, his ascension, that Satan was cast out. Father, we thank you that we conquer, we overwhelmingly conquer, not by our efforts, not by our works, but by the precious blood of the Lamb, that we are washed clean of our sins. We thank you, Father, for your great provision for us. We thank you, Father, for your mercy. We thank you for your, your kindness to us. Father, may we delight in Jesus Christ. May we give thanks to you for the good news of the gospel by which you receive sinners. Father, we pray that we might trust in you all the more. We pray, Father, that many would come to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray, Father, that your son would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> How often have you 
been to a wedding where someone asks, is there any reason why this man and this woman should not be married? And have you ever heard anyone say anything as in, hey, I, I have some uh, opposition to that or I, I, I oppose that? And you think about the things that could come up in a wedding because here, uh, the, the wedding is supposed to resemble the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and try to imagine for a moment at a wedding, you think about what are the groomsmen there for even? The groomsmen are there in case the groom has second thoughts and wants to back out. His friends are going to push him back up there saying, you are not backing down from this. We're, we're here to make sure that you follow through on what you said you're going to do. But they're also there for another reason. Imagine, imagine if someone decided to stand up to accuse this bride of all kinds of horrific, scandalous sins. I knew this woman from when this was has, and she did this and this and this. The groom's mother says, hey, we're going to escort you out rather, rather abruptly with extreme prejudice. And you think about how the scene would be, marriage supper of the lamb. That if there were anyone who dared to bring a charge against Christ's bride, the church, imagine what Christ would do to him. You realize that Satan was cast out of heaven. We're going to talk about the, the, the tenses, future tense, past tense. But we ought to understand that whether it's future, it's as good as done. Or it's past, and it's already done. We ought to understand that there will be no tolerance for those who accuse God's people. And even in this passage, we see how we conquer, not because of anything we've done, but because of the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the truth that we see in this passage, <coughs> Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12. Jesus' death and resurrection brought about his definitive victory and defeat of Satan, who is banished from heaven. Jesus' death and resurrection brought about his definitive victory and defeat of Satan, who is banished from heaven. I'm sure you'll see, even as we've read through it, we hear from it, uh, what, a, what a precious passage this is and how full of the gospel we have here. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the fact of Satan's defeat. Second, the declaration of Satan's defeat. And third, the warning about Satan's defeat. So the first point, the fact of Satan's defeat, in verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> now war arose in heaven. <clears throat> Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we've entered the second half of Revelation. The first half, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 11, had to do with the physical conflict between the church and the world, between believers and unbelievers. And the second half, here beginning in chapter 12 through 22, uh, has to do with the spiritual conflict between Christ and Satan. <clears throat> Earlier in chapter 12, uh, we heard about the, uh, these three characters, the woman, the red dragon, and the male child. We get some more descriptions 
about who the red dragon is, uh, even as we hear about it. Now, in verses 7 to 12, we have the addition of Michael. Michael was at the, uh, the archangel. <clears throat> We're told that uh, he battled Satan. Uh, so Michael and his angels, so the, the good angels who did not fall, they battled with Satan and his demons, and that uh, Satan and his demons were defeated. There was no longer a place for them in heaven. Normally, when we talk about famous battles, uh, we start talking about where did it occur? When did it occur? Who are the participants? And as you start to address those things, then you start to uh, realize that this was a true battle, meaning that if there was a real battle, then there were real participants. There were real leaders, the, the belligerents, and uh, who, were the, who were the people involved? And here we have an account of, of how Satan, the adversary, that he is one who was cast down. So we're men we mentioned earlier that the red dragon, or this, uh, this great dragon here in, in verse 9, uh, it's, it's not some type of symbolic image or symbolic vision that John has. He's referring to the ancient serpent, meaning the serpent from the garden. This is not some new symbolic character. He's saying that this is the one who's been there from the beginning. You think about what the scripture doesn't say much about what happened regarding Satan's fall. It, ha it had to have been sometime between creation and the fall. So uh, God created man. God created uh, all things. He created the angels. And then before man fell, Satan must have fallen because he was there tempting in the garden. His name mentioned in several different ways. We ought to understand the character of our God because he reveals himself in many names. And we have a few names mentioned here about, about Satan. Uh, he is the great dragon thrown down, ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So let's look at each of those. The devil, it means the accuser. The devil accuses the elect, all who are in Christ. The devil also tacitly accuses God. So the scriptures speak about how God in his forbearance did not punish the sins committed beforehand. As Romans, Romans 3 mentions uh, how before the coming of Christ, the Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to their Redeemer. Part of Satan's accusation, so Satan accuses God, he actually accuses man also. But part of his accusation is a, is a claim of injustice with God. God is less than holy because he has permitted uh, us, his people, uh, to continue living. And it's not just for sinners uh, not to be condemned. Here when you think about accusers, it's never fun to have people accusing you of all kinds of things. Perhaps there's some things that we just take for granted here in our country. Uh, one of those is that we are innocent until proven guilty. If you go to some other country, many of the other countries, they don't have this rule. If you're suspected of something, you're guilty until you're proven innocent. I, I don't know how that works. 
Because if you're guilty, right, uh, if they don't find any evidence on you and they think you're guilty, then what, what does that mean? You're still guilty? I mean, how, how do you prove that you're innocent? Right? Maybe you have to prove that you weren't there. But whatever's the case, here we have accusations. And Satan is very good at that. For us, you realize that the accusations that Satan gives us, more often than not, they're going to be true because we're still yet sinners. Maybe some of them are gross exaggerations. Maybe some of them would, would appall us. But at the same time, is it the case that uh, for, for humans who accuse us, we at least can say, you don't know the half of it. Meaning that, hey, I could say far worse than what you've just said. Satan is also the adversary. He's the enemy. He's the one who opposes us. He's the one who opposes God. You think about what he had. Was he a, uh, a high-ranking angel? That he was, uh, he was in the vicinity of God? That he had honor as an angel? But he wanted more. He wanted to usurp God's place. And with that, he lost everything. And what he lost... He does not want anyone else to have. This is part of his, his, his envy. He's also the deceiver of the whole world. You realize that Satan is happiest when sinners deny his existence as materialists or they underestimate his abilities. You look at our country, Satan manifests himself in different ways. You know, in other, other places, they have witch doctors and they have voodoo people and, and there's like some kind of, you know, uh, a grave fear about Satan and evil spirits. Well, here, we're, for the most part, people are uh, materialists. Hey, if it doesn't have matter, it doesn't exist. And Satan is, is, is ex exceedingly elated to hear that because when you underestimate your enemy, you'll be defeated by your enemy. So he's simultaneously the deceiver and the accuser. You think about this. This is like having a drug dealer, right? So a drug dealer, he sells drugs to various people, and then, then he goes to the cops and say, hey, all those people have drugs. They're not going to say, and, and by the way, I sold it to them, but say, hey, they're, they're, they're doing illegal things. They have, they have illegal drug possession. So this is essentially what Satan does. He, he, he deceives you, he tempts you, and then he accuses you. And you think what kind of, I mean, that sounds like he's kind of a jerk. But seem, people seem to like him. Here we think about the location. The battle was in heaven. And what, what was going on, Michael, what was going on in heaven, uh, in, in the meantime, Christ was there on earth in the work of redemption. The outcome of the battle, Satan and his demons were defeated. And perhaps the big question that we're asking is, when did this happen? Or when will this throwing down of Satan happen? Did it already happen? Or will it happen in the future? So perhaps some people think, well, hey, isn't this prying into the secret things of God? I don't think so. I think it's a valid question. It's not talking about when Jesus will return. It's not talking about some uh, month, day, and year, or whatever. The tense used for these verbs uh, don't indicate past or future. They could be translated either way. Here, we think about how God, uh, he often doesn't speak in terms of the past, present, future. Or if he does, 
Uh, you know, you think about he, he goes to Abraham and Sarah and says, this time next year, you will have a son. As in, for, for God, hey, people in their 90s, that's not an issue. He sees it as good as done. And so also, we can say, hey, if it's in the future, as good as done. But I think there's good evidence, uh, good arguments that Satan's throwing down has already happened. This throwing down is, is something that occurred when Jesus died, was raised from the grave in his resurrection, and ascended to heaven. So we read earlier in uh, Job 1 and 2 that the sons of God, meaning the angels, had some kind of gathering with God, and then God engaged saying, hey, what are you up to? And he says, from roaming around, going to and fro, right? So then, then he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? So there, there apparently was some conversation there. And then you see what Satan does. He, he gives the accusations. But with the casting out, see, that was, that was before Christ, after Christ resurrected. It, it would make sense that he's resurrected and Satan then is cast out. What Satan lost then was he lost his seat at the table of God. Satan could go then and he could bring accusations against God and against his people. You see that in Job 1.6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. You think about the, the accusations that Satan makes. Does Job fear God for no reason? You put a hedge of, around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan's tacit accusation against God is this. You have bribed Job to love you. He loves you not because of who you are. He loves you because of the blessing. He doesn't love the blesser. He loves the blessings. So here Satan's accusation is Job is no faithful bride. There's no loyalty. There's no faithfulness on his part. He is no different than a common prostitute. It is essentially what, what, what uh, Satan is saying. Hey, you know, if he doesn't get his pay, he's, he's gone. He's, he's not going to worship you. That's why he says, and he will curse you to your face. Not only will he just say, I, I'm, going, I'm leaving. He'll curse you to his your face. <clears throat> There's another verse that seems to point to how Jesus' death and resurrection results in Satan's being cast down. John 12, 31 and 32. Now, this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of the world be cast out. Satan was cast out of heaven when Jesus died, the shameful death on the cross. When he resurrected from the grave to life, proving that he had no sin, and then ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. This was the time when Satan was defeated. So this is the, the first point, the fact of Satan's defeat. We have the second point, the declaration of Satan's defeat. 
in verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Perhaps you've already picked up on it, that um, there's a general rule that the proclamations or these hymns in Revelation, if, if there's a voice from heaven speaking something, we see that in, 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 the, in various chapters so far, we have it here in this passage, that these proclamations uh, actually summarize or interpret John's visions. They, they tell us the significance of it. And we acknowledge that there's the truthfulness of the witness. So, so if there's a voice from heaven, that what's, what's being proclaimed there is, is true. We see that same thing mentioned in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There at the seventh trumpet, it's saying that the usurper has lost and that Jesus has full, absolute, total control over the world. Here it's presented in a different way. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So Christ's salvation, power, kingdom, and authority have come in its fullness. You think about all this term salvation. Salvation is freely being offered. Salvation is going forward. The good news of the gospel is, is progressing to the nations. You think about power. God, has, God possesses power. That if someone has authority but no power, that's, uh, that's basically a, a paper, uh, paper rule. There, there's no authority. And power uh, without proper authority, well, that's, uh, that's some type of oppression. Jesus has both of those. Hear the mention from verse 10, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Who likes to be accused by people? I don't know anyone who likes it. It's, it's never fun. But imagine being accused rather regularly. How do you respond to Satan's accusations? <coughs> Probably doesn't come from Satan directly. It comes from one of his, uh, one of his followers, so someone who is under his control. There can be various responses, most of which are not proper and don't bring any genuine solution. There's no peace or comfort uh, having the comparisons of men. So you get these accusations from Satan. You think about some of the, the worldly, some of the carnal responses we can have. Comparisons to men comes out as such as, at least I'm not a, and you fill in the blank. We have friends, you know, where we knew she was uh, an adulterer fornicator, whatever you want to call it. And as she, she shared about how the preacher was preaching, and she said, well, at least I'm not a drug dealer. We see, that's, that's one of those examples. Or, I, I'm better than most. I'm better than most people. 
Well, here's the problem. God can condemn all people justly, correct? Just because you're better than most doesn't mean anything. We're just in that line to receive condemnation. Here, if you feel the pains of conscience, there is no benefit in then being a devil or an accuser to others. Meaning, as the devil accuses you, uh, if you just pass the buck down, meaning that then you start accusing others, uh, this doesn't solve your problem either. Have you ever found it to be true that when you are suddenly hypercritical with other people, it's because there's something in your own life, your conscience, that you haven't properly dealt with. This, this is often what I see in my own life. When I, when I find that I'm hypercritical with other people, it's because there's something troubling me in my conscience. It's not a solution because the conscience is still bothered. Rather, when you are convicted of your own sins, the simple solution that God has provided for us is that we would repent, that we would forsake our sins, that we would turn away from them, and that we would cling to our Lord Jesus Christ. When the accuser comes, this is the right thing to do. If there is some truth to what the accuser is saying, that what we can do to get free is that we repent, forsake our sins, and cling to Jesus Christ. Romans 8, and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You notice there that the Apostle Paul, he doesn't even bother to answer the question. He asks this rhetorical question, and the answers are, hey, we have this problem, we have this solution. It doesn't matter who's accusing. And it's because it is God who justifies. That should be good news to you, to me. We have also the heavenly declaration of how God's people conquer Satan. There in verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. So, how is it that we conquer Satan? It's not by challenging him, hey, Satan, bring it on. No, that's, it's not. He will defeat us. It's by God's people trusting in the perfect work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is how Satan is conquered. It's conquered in humility. It's conquered uh, by, by Christ's perfect work. Here, the people who think they can challenge Satan to bring it on. These are the ones who are defeated by Satan. And at the same time, they have no clue that they are defeated. Those who are victorious in Christ, they are the ones who acknowledge that their victory is completed by Christ and completed perfectly. Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The blood of Christ brings 
your justification. This question of justification is a fundamental question in all of religion. How is a sinner made right before God? That was, I mean, isn't that what, I think it was Job, or one of Job's friends who was asking the question, how can a man born of a woman be pure? And the answer that the scripture gives us is, it's not by works, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. That Abraham was reckoned righteous by faith. Satan is conquered by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. His life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension. Romans 8.37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You think about how Christianity, then Christianity now, it's a religion of people who are the, uh, the bottom rung, the dregs of society. And you look in India, how it's the untouchables, right, that have turned to Christ so readily. And you ask, well, why, why is it that people will want to become Christian? And, and you have some politicians, even, even in the Minnesota here, who talk about how uh, religion is for the weak. Well, I don't know about you, but... I will heartily concur with that. Yes, you're right. Christianity is for those who are weak. We acknowledge our inability to save ourselves. You're exactly right. And if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in that weakness. Because when we do, we're acknowledging God's strength to save sinners. Here we also see, we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. We also conquer Satan by obeying the Lord without fear as we witness for the name of Christ. Second half of verse uh, 11. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Satan sees things on, on different levels. So he says, oh, this person is trusting in Jesus Christ. Oh, that's, that's a defeat. But you know what? At least I can get the person, uh, at least I can get this Christian to live in hiding, to live in shame. Try to imagine, try to imagine if a man and a woman were married and, uh, and then they, they were to go to a party. And the woman said, you know what? She, she says to her husband, hey, you're, you're a poor carpenter. I, I can't be seen with you in public. And it's like, well, you married the guy. Uh, you, you have to acknowledge that you are one flesh. Uh, when we go to this party, can you, can you drop me off kind of you know, behind the hotel and I'll, I'll walk around so no one sees me walk in with you? In fact, why, why, don't, you just, why, why don't you sit across uh, the, uh, the reception hall at a different table because I, I don't want to be seen with you? What kind of marriage would that be? It would be shameful. And so also you think about if there is this saving relationship with Jesus Christ and we think from the perspective, Jesus, I thank you for your mighty work of saving me. But you know what? I don't ever want to let anyone know that I'm a Christian. I want to be a closet Christian. 
this is shameful. It would be shameful. And part of Satan's lie is that, you know what? You can be a closet Christian. You can just hide. You can have all the blessings of this world. And you can be saved too. You start to wonder, what kind of relationship is this? What kind of marriage would this be to Christ? If we're going to live in such a way, hey, you know what? We don't want to be identified with you. This is, this is when you know, I lose my business. This is when you know, my neighbors uh, scorn me. And I just don't want those things. Is this how we ought to live as Christians? Or are we, should we be willing to receive uh, the negatives that come with being identified with Christ? Here, Satan, uh, he achieves this great victory when we think that we can live in silence. And we're reminded again, John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It means that there will be persecution. Persecution comes to the harming, basically means the harming of their lives. But we're reminded we are not to fear those who destroy the body. We are to fear those who can throw body and soul into hell. G.K. Beale, he is a scholar. He wrote a great commentary on Revelation. And he had this quote that I thought, I don't often share quotes from writers, but he has this one I thought would be helpful. Christians can be assured, <coughs> excuse me, Christians can be assured that the serpent begins to battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle over their souls. This expresses one of the major themes of the book. The suffering of Christians is a sign, not of Satan's victory, but of the saints' victory over him because of their belief in the triumph of the cross with which their suffering identifies them. So Christians can be assured the serpent begins the battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle over their souls. So what, what Satan is saying, hey, listen, your soul has been saved. You're trusting in Jesus Christ. You've crossed from death to life. Then he says, okay, now I'm going to pound you into the dirt. I'm going to send disease. I'm going to send shame. I'm going to send pain your way. You lose limb. You, you lose, uh, I'm going to make it hurt is essentially what Satan says. When you look at the apostles, uh, was it only John who lived to be an old man and, and died? Was it on the island of Potmouth? And all the other apostles, what happened to them? They were martyred. Did Satan get his way? Well, to some degree, yes. But were these, were these apostles then glorified? Did they end up in heaven with our Lord Jesus? Yes, they did. Are they victorious? They indeed are. And so will you be. So will you be. So this is the second point, the declaration of Satan's defeat. We have the third point, the warning about Satan's defeat in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. <clears throat> so there's two parts to this warning. One is that there is rejoicing in heaven, because, uh, because the... The accuser has been thrown down. He is ejected from heaven. And here I, perhaps you can identify with uh, 
if you ever worked on a team or in a group with a cranky person, someone who is always making trouble and accusing others. He, he or she is the one who spoils the mood for everyone. And, and when the person is laid off or the person chooses to quit on their own, then is there some sense of you're thankful that, uh, that this, uh, you know, this horrible scene can kind of improve? Right? We, we, we can understand something like this. When, when the person is always making trouble and, and makes it tough for you even to show up to work, that this person is no longer there. And it's like a breath of fresh air has come into your workplace. And, and you think about it in heaven, in some perfectly sanctified way with no sin, there is such a rejoicing that Satan is cast out. But there's also this warning. There's also this warning about the banishment. Verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We ought to think in this way. What's more dangerous than a lion? What's more dangerous than a lion is a wounded lion. Because uh, the wounded lion uh, will see to it that he has to protect himself. And Satan, uh, with his wounded pride, he is going to be ferocious. He realizes that he has lost. And he's going to be angry. Whatever he wanted, he doesn't want anyone else to have. And the bottom line is... All of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ will have what he, never, what he never got, what he wanted and lost. He's going to be furious because his time is short. It's already been set that he will be thrown into that lake of burning fire. Remember the, was it the scene of the Jesus uh, deals with the... the the Gerasene demoniac, that uh, this is the, uh, the legion, and they went into the pigs, uh, but, but they, they had this statement to Jesus, oh, what do you want with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Are you going to torment us? They asked him that question, are you going to torment us? It, it's because they knew their time was coming. They were going to be thrown into the lake of burning fire. They just didn't know when. So, so they were concerned, hey, are you going to torment us now? Is, is the time come? They know that the time is short. You think back to World War II. You think back to uh, much of the loss of life actually happened when Adolf Hitler already knew that he was defeated. You think about the executions. You think about uh, the killings. Uh, it seemed like it was actually the majority of the loss of life is when he knew he was already done. But yet, at the same time, uh, victory often doesn't come overnight. That battles are still going on, even though the war is won. And in the same way, we ought to see that, that Jesus has won the war. But there's still these battles going on. Satan knows that the duration that he has, is the period is short. And we think about how these six verses... <coughs> can be of good use to us. Faith requires that you hope in what you don't see, that you see past what is currently here. Faith is what gives us the long-term perspective. It's what gives us the eternal perspective, that even though 
it seems like Satan is abusing you. That the disease, uh, the suffering that comes, especially for being a Christian, that these are not signs of your defeat. It's actually a sign of your victory. It's because a sore loser is wanting to punish you. But his time is short. We ought to trust in Jesus' victory despite the appearances, the mere appearances to the contrary. Jesus indeed is victorious. He told us he is, and we ought to believe him at his word. As a Christian, at some point, you will be targeted with accusations. Perhaps some of them even true, some not. And perhaps you've already been targeted, and you've already experienced this, and you see it regularly. This passage is the needed reminder uh, that Satan and his minions have been thrown down from heaven. They've already been cast out. And it's a reminder to us that it doesn't matter who is accusing you. If you have Jesus as your mediator and your defense attorney, at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters is God's. When he gives a verdict, there is no appeal. That when he says, this one is mine, this one has been redeemed, this one is justified by the blood of Christ, we can acknowledge that whoever accuses is of no significance. May you trust in God's power to save, his, his ability to redeem sinners, and how this indeed is good news for us. Let we go to our God together in prayer.